0: Awkward, lacking social grace and assurance, causing embarrassment. few of us like awkward encounters and awkward moments. I said in my blog this week, most of my awkward encounters are come when I step in it in one form or another. It was a and I have to give background to this so you understand what I'm saying, and so this doesn't become awkward. but the years I, I don't have any hair literally people often ask me do I shave or not I, I really I've got very little I've got some there but there was a point where I, re- where I was starting to lose my hair and, and realized that um, I hadn't shaved it yet and, and I had hair right here and it was tufting out and all, the only image I had in my head was Bozo the Clown and some of you don't know who Bozo the Clown is he wore a little thing over his head it was all clean hair and then hair here and it tufted out and I looked and I said Bozo the Clown that was the moment I realized I was going to shave my head because I didn't want to look like Bozo the Clown. And so there was one night, I was in a gathering of people, and somebody said, you know, do you have hair? I, no, I don't. If I didn't shave, I, I wouldn't have much. And I said, I shave because I don't want to look like Bozo the Clown. You know, a little rim around here. And then I looked around the table. And someone had, you know, hair. And they did not look like Bozo the Clown. Nonetheless, it was out there. And there was like that moment of, okay, and now let's talk some more. Awkward, lacking social grace or assurance, causing embarrassment. I watched The Office. I liked The Office. I used to watch the BBC version of The Office, and then I had to stop. There was one episode where I was literally watching it like this, with hands covering my eyes, because I was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed for what Ricky Gervais was doing. It was like I just—it was—it was, it was in, everything about him was so awkward. It was actually painful. Now, most of us. Avoid the awkward. As we were going through and looking at the book of Luke, what we discovered is that Jesus creates the awkward. Over and over again, he walked into scenes, encounters, and conversations, and he says that that makes people go, that was awkward, (laughs) that was kind of embarrassing. He continually says things, does things, acts in ways that creates that uncomfortable pause, like, like that scene where the words that he says and how he does it makes people go, whoa, what, what are you doing here? And out this series, we're going to look at eight encounters where Jesus creates the awkward moment. And he creates the awkward moment because he's willing to do that because something needs to change. He's trying to unsettle the status quo, the way things are. And as we go through this series, it is my hope that not only will you see how Jesus is unsettling the status quo of the crowd he's talking to. But one of the desires God has for our life is not to make us nicer, better, you know, slightly happier people, but to unsettle the status quo. To make us stop and pause about things as they are. Because in every one of us, something needs to change. Life needs to be lived differently. And God isn't content with sort of putting patches in our life. He creates the awkward moment. He makes us pause and think and reflect. It is our hope that throughout this series, that's what happened, that will happen. Now I'm going to read a, the passage that 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 scene is depicting. Although it's it's, it's important for you to know a couple things. One, I'm going to give you some background to it. The history is important, but also Zeffirelli takes massive liberties with that scene. There are some. Uh, movies, The Life of Jesus, they, they only use the words in the, in the Gospels. Uh, Zeffirelli, he pulls from all over the place in that scene. He pulls from the Sermon on the Mount, and he just sort of adds all sort of stuff into that scene and that, that, that make it happen a certain way. And I as you'll we, discover, as we read through the encounter, it didn't happen quite the way he, he said. Now Here's the, here's the background. At, at this time, this is the time of the Pax Romana, when the Roman Empire ruled and they ruled over a vast empire and in that empire they had created peace. The time of bread and circuses where there was security and there was entertainment. There was not constant fighting and struggle. A a level of peace had been achieved by the Roman Empire in every part of their realm except this one little corner, Israel, which just would not cooperate. Everyone else bowed to the Roman and Greek gods. Israelites would not. Everyone else wanted to be Hellenized, to be, have Greek culture apart. Greek culture was the height of culture. Everybody else wanted that. Greek culture will take it. Not the Israelites. They wouldn't take it. The, Greek, the uh, Israelites offended others by not eating unclean foods with their neighbors. They refused to work on Friday nights and Saturdays. And they continued to revolt. As uh, Philip Yancey writes in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Jesus lived in a time of nearly constant revolt. Periodically, pseudo-Messiahs would arise, and they would lead rebellions, only to be put down, crushed, by Roman uh, oppression. In 4 BC, the year of Jesus' birth, there was a rebellion. And in that rebellion, at the end of it, the Romans ruthlessly crushed it. 2,000 Jews were crucified. There was a pseudo named the Egyptian who led another revolt. 4,000 Jews were put to death. In year 10 BC, there was another revolt. It's important to know is these revolts all came out of the land that Jesus grew up in, Galilee, this little backwater, considered sort of a hick part of Israel, but it continued to produce revolt and political unrest. Jesus was from Galilee, specifically from the hometown of Nazareth. He was from the area where the pseudo-Messiahs kept rising up and every time they rose up, people died. Because the Romans were not passive about rebellion. You revolt, we crush it. We don't stop it. We crush it. In that context, some of the the leaders of Israel were, were trying to, you know, walk a tight line. I mean, the Pharisees there were a number of different groups of Israelites. The Pharisees are the ones that we usually lampoon in the American church as being this really rigid group. My guess is, my guess is, that would have been the group we would have most identified with. Because the Pharisees were the group that on one level were trying to keep some sense of Israelite culture and righteousness and and following laws going. In the midst of this domination by a foreign oppressor who was trying to change everything about the culture, the Pharisees were trying to hold the line and live by a certain level of conscience and conviction. And on the other hand, they were trying not to get everybody killed. And so they were sort of on the watch for the pseudo-Messiahs because every time revolt happened, lots of people died. In the midst of that, there is this young man named Jesus. He's from Galilee, small town in the backwater part of uh, Israel called... Uh, I mean, from Nazareth, from Galilee. And he had... as a carpenter's son, he'd begun touring Galilee and he'd gained some notoriety. And some of that is through teaching and some of that through, if if you're from his hometown of Nazareth, you would have said from his alleged miracles. And then this young man, after touring for three years around the countryside and gaining notoriety, comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he is invited to speak and read the section of the... uh, of the prophets during the service in the synagogue. And this is the account in the book of Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. At this point, they all would have expected Jesus to then say, to speak glowingly about this future time when a Messiah would come. Because all prophecy referred to this one, this king who would come. And he would bring finally deliverance for his people Israel. He would make things right. And so as Jesus reads this, they were waiting to hear this young, you know, this local boy who's done well. They were waiting to hear him speak glowingly about this future Messiah, the king. This strong, powerful leader who would come from God and give his people freedom. And as he sits down, this is what he says. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to, him, to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you have to understand, this is sort of the equivalent of like going into a party and saying, Hi, I'm the Savior of the world. What do you do? <laughs> Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am he. Now, what's interesting, and Zephyrelli doesn't show this, what's interesting, is it, well, next what it says is, all spoke well of him, were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. And was saying, he's a good speaker. He thinks he's God, but he's a good speaker. <laughs> Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? At this point, they're not wigged out yet, which is kind of interesting. But they're not wigged out yet. You can tell a little bit's going on with the, isn't this Joseph's son? And I think what they're thinking in the back of their head is, okay, Jesus, you're not the Messiah. Um, you're not. I mean, look at yourself. You're a carpenter's son. You don't got the pedigree for this. You certainly don't look like the you know powerful one from God come to deliver us from the Roman Empire. Come on. You're not the Messiah. And, and two every time somebody claims to be the Messiah, lots of people die. So, just let's keep that in here. Because, after all, let's get real, you're Joseph's son. You're the son of the carpenter. You're not the all-powerful Messiah come from God. But, they're not that upset yet. And then he goes on. See, here's what I find interesting about a lot of Jesus' conversations. He's already said, by the way, I'm the king I'm God I'm God come to earth and it doesn't bother them enough and so he pushes it farther and this is what he says Jesus said to them surely you will quote this proverb to me physician heal yourself do here in your hometown what we've heard what we've heard that you did in Capernaum I tell you the truth he continued no prophet is accepted in his hometown I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow and Zarephath in the region of Sidon and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet yet not one of them was cleansed only Naaman the Syrian all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this they got up drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He tells them two stories, stories out of their own Old Testament. tells them two stories, and now they're enraged. Now they want to kill him. What, What has he pricked in them that causes this reaction? Well, one, I think still, they're on the edge because he's already claimed to be the Messiah, so I think they're ready to take offense. But then... He he quotes this passage. The passage is this beautiful passage of when the Messiah comes and finally he will deliver us. In that passage, Jesus actually cut off the next little section where it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God. And see, the deeply held belief at that time was that when the Messiah came, he would bring peace to his people. And he would crush those who were not. He would finally vindicate his people who were struggling to live his way in the midst of a world that was apostate. And he would deliver them and crush the others. This was a deeply held belief that drove how they saw the world. And Jesus says, not only am I the Messiah, but let me remind you, that God is not interested in crushing those outside. Let me tell you two stories of when God deliberately went to the margins, to the outside, to those you're hoping vengeance will come to, and He brought grace to them and not to you. It's one thing to foment a rebellion that gets thousands killed. It's another to say that God will not enact judgment on the rest of the world this they can't take this drives them to try to kill him because he has questioned the very core belief about how they view the world and about what they hope for now what does that say to you and I what's the unsettling here for you and I you know let me do it this way there's a um, book by Francis Schaeffer called How Should We Then Live? And in that he, he goes through, and it was written a number of years ago, and it's, it's a very insightful book, where he, he walks through the decline of Western civilization, how, how, it, is, how it has fallen, and, and he does that a lot of ways through culture and, and, and government and, and through art. And at one point he's talking about the Roman Empire, and this is what he says, the Roman Empire, for all its power and control, had no answers for the human condition. It had no answers for the human condition. It it didn't speak in any practical way to the real deep issues of the heart. The difference, and one of the things that made Jesus' teaching very uncomfortable, is he very practically spoke to the human condition and called people to act. He he continued to call people to, to make decisions and to act. He was not ethereal. He wasn't over there just saying, I want everybody to be happy. You know, I, I want there to be good good vibes here. He was speaking very practically and calling people to a deliberate, specific action. And the truth is, as I look at this passage, there's, there's so many things to bring out of us. And three of them I'm going to mention and really not talk about it. And one I'm going to hone very tightly on. I mean, what would he unsettle in us? Well, perhaps narcissism or Or inactivity or over-spiritualization because the truth is this is most of the time how we read that passage from Isaiah when it says the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor He sent me to claim freedom for the prisoners recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed we see ourselves in there we're the oppressed we're the blind at times we even sing about that we see ourselves in there and one of the things I think Jesus is saying in this passage is, don't over-spiritualize everything. I actually mean people who are blind and oppressed. I'm actually concerned about how we care for people who need actual, real, tangible, physical help. When I tell the parable about if someone is thirsty and you gave him a cup of water to drink, you did it for me, I actually mean a glass of water. I actually mean when somebody has a practical need I want my people to live in such a way that they meet it. When I said when someone's hungry and you fed them I'm actually talking about food. I'm not talking about some ethereal sense of well, if you'd sort of care for them. If they're hungry, give them food. Certainly we could talk about the tendency to over-spiritualize and Jesus would have us look at our lives differently and not see everything. Not see Everything our own gaze. But I think the biggest thing that struck me out of this is the concept of reconciliation. What drove this group mad was when Jesus said, okay, I love you, but I'm kind of pissed off at them. I'll bring compassion to you, but I'll bring vengeance to them. And he said, that's not the way God is. Understand, that's not what's going to happen in this one instance. That's not the way God is. Last week, Alan Love talked about planning for our lives. And the first concept that he talked about, perspective. That you can't really know the actions you ought to take until you understand your worldview, your perspective. This passage challenges something fundamental in our worldview, in our perspective that will drive how we act in extremely practical, tangible ways. And this is what it is. We tend. It's almost natural. We tend to divide. We tend to separate between us and them the uh, historian Michel Foucault would say that the, the fundamental truth about Western civilization is that we create those who are in the right and the other that the natural tendency in every regime every political system is to create those who are in and those who are out and we learn this at a very early age from elementary school we're creating those who are in and those who are out and it gets worse in junior high quite honestly some of the moments I most regret in my life see I was understand how I say this I was in and the way I treated those that we deemed to be out were things if I most if I most could go back and edit the film of my life those would come out those would be gone it doesn't get much better in high school does it? where we struggle really hard to find that place of fitting because if we don't fit somewhere then we're out. And this deep need to belong, to feel like we're a part of something, to matter is so strong that we we got to create us and them. And it doesn't really go away when we're adults. We fight and we divide and we separate. We categorize what's right what's wrong we set up fences and walls between us and other people we do it subtly and we do it sometimes explicitly over the last couple of days uh, Nan and i watched the movie slum dog millionaire and one of the scenes it's a, it's a compelling film um, it really is and one of the scenes shows a slum where uh, it's a muslim slum in india and you see just a group of people rushing it with clubs, and in a minute you're like, what's going on here? And then you hear the group that's coming with the clubs saying, you know, get them, they're Muslims. And they just start wailing on them. And lots of people die. Now, you, you understand, it's, it's not Hindu, Muslim, it could be anything. In in Ireland it was, it was Catholic, Protestant. We have this tendency, this habit to categorize, ostracize and vilify others. This is human nature. By contrast, is God. If you look at the life of Jesus, you know he was accused of being in a drunkard and hanging out with prostitutes and because he did he, he consistently, you watch his encounters, read through the gospel of Luke, watch his encounters, he will consistently go to the margins. He'll consistently go to those who are out, who are ostracized, and spend time with them. And he will avoid the in crowd. What's he trying to teach us? God is a God of reconciliation. He's a God who destroys barriers between us and him and between us and others. He makes a practice. It is his nature to reconcile, to make things right, to unite and not divide. This is intended to be the normative way that the followers of Jesus live. As Paul writes later in the New Testament, we are called to be agents of reconciliation. Our worldview, our perspective on life, is to be such that we see ourselves as people who break barriers down consistently, practically. We are reconcilers not dividers. Now, that has very specific implications. It has implications, honestly, for when this service ends. As soon as the service ends, we act in certain ways. We act in ways that divide or ways that incorporate. As soon as the service ends, out of our worldview. Of how we see who God is and who we are called to be affects how we act and who we move toward. It happens in how we teach our kids. Who do we teach them to weigh into? What do we teach them about race? What do we teach them about others who are different than we are? It happens when relationships get broken. What do we do? What do we do when we're hurt? You know, we, we tend to vilify some of the actions of the, you know, the Pharisees and others in the Bible. But I understand something. They've gotten the, you know, what kicked out of them for years. I, I can understand why they wanted a little bit of, you know, making something right. I can understand why they wanted a little bit of vengeance. Because any one of you who has a relationship that's gone sideways, why do I have to mend it? I didn't even do anything wrong. Why do I have to be the one who leads back into the relationship? Whether it's in marriage, or friendship, or in your family. Why? It's a very natural, normative way of looking at life what I would have you understand, the awkward moment is this. God wants us to be reconcilers. Not occasionally, but at the core of who we are. This is normative for a follower of Jesus. I have some situations I sat up in my office between services and thought of one in particular and thought, what am I going to do? And I'll be this honest with you and I am still fighting it. Where I know how God views the world. I do. I know he's a reconciler. I mean, let's be honest. The reason I am a follower of Jesus is because God's a reconciler. Because I was out. I mean, I was out, out. You know. And he came to me. I mean, the whole of the the Bible is the story of God reaching out to people who don't deserve it, who've walked away, who, who, who have no right to be followers of his, who have no right to be loved by him. And he comes after and he pesters us and he hounds us and he draws us to himself out of love and out of our best interest because God reconciles people to himself. And I would say to you today, if you feel like you're one who's on the outside, God will love to draw you to himself. You can't get outside enough for God not to draw you because his character and his nature is one who reconciles people to himself. That's why he sent Jesus to earth. Not just to teach in the synagogue but to go to the cross and to die to pay a penalty for you that you can't afford to pay so that you can be reconciled back to himself. That's what he does. I know this. I know this is who he is. I know this is who he longs for me to be. It's one who does not hold a grudge. It's one who, who reconciles and yet I fight it. And that's the awkward silence in my own life. Because I can feel him telling me, Are you going to be a reconciler? Not vaguely talk about, you know, we should be a people of peace, but are you going to reconcile? Or are you going to remain with a wall up? See, I got some situations. What's yours? What are the places in your life that are calling you to be a reconciler? Is it how you look at a whole group of people? Is it a place you've been hurt? Or is it your strong need to have yourself identified so much with the group that you really can't get outside yourself? What's yours? It's all very practical. God is a God who reconciles. Who breaks down barriers. He's calling us to be the same way. Start now. To live that way as a follower of His. Let's pray. Lord I'm well aware that on our own strength we won't get really far at trying to be a true reconciler like you are and yet I know that's why you've sent your spirit that's why you've forgiven us in Jesus that's why you've given us your spirit and that's why you've given us your word to teach us a wise way to live that is very active and proactive because something needs to change to the extent that the world follows a pattern of a natural way of looking at uh, pain and distance we will continue to create barriers but that needs to change so that this world would be more like your character so that more people including us would know the power and the beauty of being drawn in and not cut off so that in very practical ways you could use us so that somebody and some people's lives would change lead us now speak to us during this time give us your spirit give us hope because you have first reconciled us to yourself we pray this in Jesus name Amen at this time we receive an offering and our offering is a picture for us of what we long to be true of us is that we believe two things that God waits deeply into our lives deeply, significantly, meaningful into our lives and that he calls us out of his invasion into our lives to practically live that out.